Welcome to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast, where we bring you amazing guests on the cutting edge of science, health, and business each week to share strategies that you can use to get the breakthrough you're looking for in your life. I'm your host, Dr. Nevada Gray. Joining me is my co-host, Chris Donahue. We're glad that you're joining us today. If you are enjoying our podcast, we invite you to hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. The views expressed on the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast are the opinions of the hosts and guests and are not to be taken as medical advice, as the hosts and guests do not provide medical care. Information is provided for educational purposes only. You should consult your medical provider in relation to your own personal health and prior to making any changes in your diet and fitness. Dr. Christopher Palmer is a psychiatrist and researcher working at the interface of metabolic and mental disorders. He is the director of the Department of Postgraduate and Continuing Education at McLean Hospital and an assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. For over 25 years, he has worked with people who have treatment-resistant mental illnesses using standard treatments such as medications, psychotherapy, and complementary and alternative treatments. He has been pioneering the use of the medical ketogenic diet in the treatment of psychiatric disorders, conducting research in this area, treating patients, writing, and speaking broadly on this topic. We hope you enjoy today's episode with Dr. Palmer, and be sure to subscribe and share with a friend who may find value. Dr. Christopher Palmer, thank you so much for joining us today. We are very excited. We've been very excited to have you on the show. We've got a ton of questions from listeners. We're very interested in delving into all kinds of topics with you. But first, how are you doing today? How's everything? I am doing great. And thank you for having me on the show. It's really a pleasure and an honor to be here. Welcome. You've been a very popular request for our podcast, so we're very happy that you're here today. Thank you. No, I'm, if, if I can be of help to people, I am more than happy to step up and do my best. Awesome. Well, Doc, we uh, I, probably, I think a lot of people in our sphere are familiar with your work and know a little bit about what you're doing, but why don't we start off by just telling us just a little bit of your story. How did you get interested in the ketogenic diet for neurodegenerative and, and mental health issues? Like, how did this all start for you? So it's a great question, and I could talk forever on it. I'll try to make it quick. So so I myself have been on a low-carb or ketogenic diet for 23 years. I started doing it for my own health when I was in my 20s because I was diagnosed with metabolic syndrome already. And lo and behold, it worked quite well for me. Um, and you know, one of the things that I noticed early on was that in addition to improving my quote-unquote metabolic health, so my blood pressure was getting better, my cholesterol and lipids were getting better, um, pre-diabetes was getting better. I noticed significant differences in my mood and energy. I just felt better. I was thinking more. I had more motivation. I, I, I could kind of be one of those people who seemed kind of happy and peppy a lot of the time. And, uh, um, 
And then I started to think, gosh, I wonder if this might help people who have treatment resistant depression initially is where I started. And so 15 years ago, I started using this dietary intervention in people with treatment depression. And lo and behold, I found that it really significantly helped a lot of people. Didn't help everybody and not everybody could do it. But uh, people who could do it, a lot of them had significant and some of them very dramatic improvement in their long-term chronic depression. And then about five years ago, I was trying to help one of my long-term patients who had been diagnosed with schizoaffective disorder, which is a cross between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. And I was really just trying to help him lose weight. I had no conceptualization that this diet might help his psychotic symptoms and his uh, his profound mood symptoms. Um, And so I was just trying to help him lose weight. And within two months, I witnessed a dramatic transformation. Again, in this patient that I knew very well, I had seen him through ups and downs. I had seen him on and off various medications in and out of hospitals. So I kind of knew what his good days looked like and what his bad days looked like. And he was undergoing a transformation that I had never seen with any of those, that his symptoms were dramatically reducing. He was coming back to life. He was like engaging with other people. He was able to think more clearly. He was able to start taking classes online. He was able to go out into the world and not be afraid of people. He was able to start making friends. Um, Everything was just transforming for him. And that one case in particular kind of set me on a path to figure out what the hell is going on. Like, how on earth could this diet that I knew pretty well, I, and I'd been using it for treatment-resistant depression, so I kind of thought I knew it. I had no conceptualization that it might help disorders as serious and profound God. and And that made me kind of um, go on a whole journey of questioning not only what is happening in the brain and what is the science behind this, but it also made me kind of rethink and re-question, well, what causes mental illness to begin with? Like, how is this happening? And what does this tell us about what causes mental illness? And since then, I've used this dietary intervention in dozens of patients, many of whom had treatment-resistant illness, Um, and we're very much suffering. I've published a lot of case reports, small pilot studies, um, and review articles in both the medical literature and just for the general public. And, uh, And as a result of that, I am hearing from people around the world on a daily basis, sharing their stories, sharing their success stories, asking for help, saying they want this treatment, Um, And so in my mind, it's a really exciting time to be in this space because, uh, you know, people, unfortunately, people are really desperate and our current treatments don't work well enough for far too many of them. And and I'm not here to bash psychiatry or medications when they work. That's awesome. And I can guarantee everybody taking a pill is a lot easier than doing the ketogenic diet. But when the treatments aren't working for you and your life is kind of devastated and ruined and you're still suffering, this presents a whole new treatment option 
but in my mind, the thing that's so exciting about it is that what it means. And, and when we understand the science, it's not just the diet that can be an intervention. Other things like exercise, things that we've known all along, sleep, light exposure, other things can all have an impact on brain function and mental health. Yes, and your work is giving people hope uh, for treatment options where nothing else is working. And right now, we're in the midst of a mental health crisis, not only in our country, but in the world with our current pandemic, election stress on top of normal life stress. And right now, people, they're wearing many hats. Their resources are spread thin in terms of finances and jobs. They're homeschooling their kids. And while we want to delve into how to survive this pandemic, I first wanted to set the foundation for our listeners that may not know um, the foundation of mental health. And I was wondering if you could speak to what is the current paradigm and what is the emerging evidence showing us? For example, what is metabolic health and what is a ketogenic diet? So all great questions. So I think the current, you know, the easiest paradigm for mental health is called the biopsychosocial model, which basically just says there are biological factors, psychological factors, and social factors that all come together. They mix and match in different ways to produce different illnesses in different people. Um, and you know, one thing that I think is really important about the biopsychosocial model is I 100% endorse it, and I very much believe it. Um, the, the challenge is people don't know how to connect the dots. They don't know how these things all. Um, but, uh, you know, that's one of the things that I am actually working on academically and, um, and in my research is trying to figure out how do these things fit together? And interestingly, they really do. Um, and so when people have psychological stress or social stress, one easy example to just kind of begin to paint a little bit of the picture of how they fit together. When people are stressed, we get a rise in cortisol. And cortisol is a really good, essential stress hormone that helps us survive adversity. But when cortisol levels are elevated over a prolonged period of time, we know that it actually can cause insulin resistance. Um, it can cause weight gain. Uh, it can cause sleep problems, um, and it can actually cause diabetes. And so when, when people have elevated cortisol levels over a period of time, it actually ends up affecting their metabolism. Mm -hmm. So psychological and social factors or stressors can actually result in metabolic problems like being overweight or like having diabetes or insulin resistance. And it turns out that, you know, for a long time, people thought that insulin didn't really matter for the brain. And over the last 15 to 20 years, we've actually discovered a whole new field, which is that insulin is actually critically important to brain function. And in fact, the brain can become insulin resistant. Um, and this has been found in a wide variety of both mental disorders, but also neurological disorders, things like Alzheimer's disease. And so people are talking about type 3 diabetes now, meaning diabetes in the brain. Um, 
And so that's just one easy example of how psychological and social factors can affect biology. There are innumerable others. Um, but uh, I think I'll stop there. And I'm now forgetting I go, went on a tangent. So I forgot the rest of your question. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> oh, no worries. So we've heard a lot about metabolic health. And people are looking to understand what exactly does metabolic health mean? What, what is it? And what is a ketogenic diet? Uh, most people are familiar with it in the treatment of epilepsy. Um, as we also know, a lot of medications used in epilepsy are also used in psychiatry. Um, so I think people are just looking, what exactly do these terms mean? And just in a layman's term, so they can better understand this. Great questions. So most people and most medical professionals today think of metabolic health as, you know, one of just a, a few conditions. So they, you know, most people would put obesity overweight or obesity into the metabolic camp. They would also put diabetes into the metabolic kind of bucket, and they would put cardiovascular disease in the metabolic bucket. And um, so, you know, lipid levels play a role, blood pressure plays a role, um, but certainly your weight and how much fat you have stored on your body, especially in your abdominal area, are all really important metrics that affect metabolism. But in fact, how that even fits together is really perplexing. So a lot of people really want to think about it in simple terms. And they think that it's metabolic problems are all a problem of willpower, unfortunately. And so far too many people think that, oh, well, that you've got these kind of lazy people who are sitting around watching TV, overeating, eating bonbons all day, and then they get overweight or obese, and they get diabetic, and then they have a heart attack or a stroke. And it's all very clear. They were just being lazy slobs. They were overeating, and then they're, they're suffering the consequences. Very tragically, far too many people think about those metabolic disorders in that way. And let me be 100% unequivocally clear, I do not. I actually think that when people have a metabolic problem, that can actually cause them to not have enough energy to be able to exercise. That can actually cause them to feel hungry all the time so that they do end up overeating. And so it's really important to think about, well, what's the chicken and what's the egg? And, you know, that example that I just gave a little bit about cortisol, we know with certainty that, you know, I could take almost any healthy individual, anybody with really strong willpower and discipline, and I could give them high doses of prednisone. And guess what would happen to them? Their willpower would go away. They would all of a sudden start overeating. They would become overweight or obese, and they would develop type 2 diabetes. And, and, and I think that is just one clear example of, you know, it's not necessarily about willpower. It, these hormones and other factors affect metabolism. So that's the way most medical professionals think about metabolism is weight and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. I'm really advocating to start thinking about and including possibly mental disorders as a sign of metabolic health, that when your metabolism in the brain isn't working right, that 
that often means your brain isn't working right. And, and that shows itself through what sometimes what we call mental symptoms or symptoms of mental illness. And that can be as simple as anxiety or depression or insomnia. But in some cases, it can be as severe as something that we might call schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. Um, and so, uh, so I'm really interested in the ketogenic diet to get to the second part of your question, because the ketogenic diet, although it's called a diet, I professionally don't really think of it as a diet. I think of it as a metabolic intervention. Um, and I think about it as a way to change the metabolism of the human body in very profound ways that can end up having therapeutic effects for some people, especially people with metabolic problems. Um, and, uh, and so the ketogenic diet, almost most of you probably know, is a diet that's very high in fat low in carbohydrate, and then the amount of protein kind of is moderate, but it really depends on the person and how active they are and how much body fat they have. Um, so the amount of protein people can consume is somewhat different depending on who they are and what, what they're bringing to the table. Um, but essentially, the ketogenic diet results in your body running on fat and ketones as opposed to glucose for its primary energy source. And it turns out that that actually has profound effects on the way the body and the brain function. Um, and uh, it stimulates like a ton of different metabolic processes that aren't just about fuel source, that it stimulates processes that result in your body healing itself, um, that result in, you know, improving overall metabolism and function of all different organs and cells. So that's, that it's not just your brain, but also your liver, your kidneys, your heart, other things. And so I'm particularly interested in the ketogenic diet for a wide variety of reasons. And the really exciting and fascinating thing is we have a ton of science on this already because neurologists have been studying this for decades trying to figure out how the hell does that stop seizures like how can a diet stop seizures what's going on like that doesn't make sense um and so they've been studying this trying to figure out what exactly is it doing and so we actually know a tremendous amount i'll stop there and let you ask another question if you want yeah no i you know and that kind of leads to I would love to hear because so many of us started the ketogenic diet or carnivore diet for weight loss I think Amber O'Hearn said it best she said came came for the weight loss stayed for the mood improvement and the mental health improvement and that story we hear really on a daily basis of wow, I just tried to drop a few pounds and, and my brain came alive or I overcame addiction or this you know history of anxiety just cleared up. I know I've in my own life seen tremendous improvement in, in my mental health. And so I think it goes to just, you know, we've, we're learning that, wow, the brain really is a part of the body <laughs> and it is affected by what we eat and the fuel that we put in and, you know, what a concept. And so, 
Can you talk a little bit about what are some of those other ways and pathways that the ketogenic diet is influencing the brain, upregulating, you know, GABA neurotransmitters? Like what's, what's happening on a, you know, in layman's terms, but what's happening in the brain? So it, it, that is a phenomenal question. And unfortunately, the, the real answer is super complicated. I'm just going to say there are at least like 30 to 40 different mechanisms of action known. But I'll give you some high level ones that okay. we're pretty sure are playing a role. So I mentioned insulin resistance and how insulin resistance in the brain is really important and increasingly recognized as a major problem in a lot of people across a wide variety of different disorders. And we know that the ketogenic diet, number one, it's providing an alternate fuel source. So that in and of itself is helpful because it bypasses the problem of insulin resistance. Ketones can slide right into the cell and be used as a fuel source. Whereas when people are insulin resistant, glucose can't get into those cells. So those cells, so, so even though the person's glucose might be really high if they're diabetic, it's actually... A, a, a state of almost cell starvation, that the cells are struggling, that they're, they're not getting enough fuel. Um, but on top of that, the ketogenic diet lowers insulin levels, which over time can actually repair insulin resistance and allow insulin resistance to kind of go away and, and insulin sensitivity to come back. On top of that, you mentioned neurotransmitters, and we know that the ketogenic diet changes neurotransmitters, several of them, GABA, glutamate, adenosine, and, and that, you know, is consistent with, you know, one of the big theories about mental illness is that they're chemical imbalances. Um, and when they talk about chemicals, they're talking about neurotransmitters. And, and so the, that theory suggests that everybody needs to take medication in order to rebalance those chemicals. And in fact, again, for some people, those can work. And I'm, I'm not here to you know, bash that. I'm not here to say that people shouldn't take medicine if they're helping them. But for far too many people, the medicines we have don't do the right job. They're not rebalancing the chemicals in the right way. This diet rebalances the neurotransmitters in your brain and allows your brain to function more normally. So for some people, a dietary intervention like the ketogenic diet might be a better option, a better alternative. And then the, um, we know that the ketogenic diet decreases inflammation. We know that inflammation plays a big role, not only in mental disorders, but also metabolic disorders. So there's that overlap. People with cardiovascular disease, with obesity, with diabetes, all have higher levels of this low-grade inflammation. Well, guess what? So do people with schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, chronic depression, post-traumatic stress disorder. They too have these low-grade levels of inflammation. And we know that this diet decreases that inflammation, which we have strong reason to believe is probably helpful and beneficial. And maybe the last thing I'll mention is that you know, the gut microbiome seems to be, play a big role. So all of the different bacteria and other microbes in our gut, they get first dibs on everything we eat, but they end up, you know, they end up processing a lot of the foods and turning it into neurotransmitters and hormones and neuropeptides that end up getting absorbed into our bloodstream and going all around our body and our brain and affecting it. Um, and so what we eat ends up, profoundly having um, 
effects on hormones, neuropeptides, neurotransmitters that are found in our bloodstream because of the microbes in our gut. Um, so I'll stop there. I could, again, there are so many mechanisms of action. I could go on for days, but, uh, but those are some, those are some high level ones. So this leads me to a question. As a pharmacist, I dispense a lot of medication for mental health. And over time, the medications stop working or doses need to be increased or patients are switched. And I'm just curious regarding exogenous ketones, the role of exogenous ketones or coconut oil. We're all familiar with the work of Dr. Newport uh, with Alzheimer's disease. And, you know, patients trying to find that combination um, with medication, lifestyle. What are your thoughts on those treatments and your observations that you've seen in clinical practice? So it's a great question. And, you know, there are definitely researchers studying this because there's no question that taking exogenous ketones is a lot easier than doing a ketogenic diet. Um, and, uh, and so people are looking for an easy answer for, for the people who just don't have it in them to be able to do a keto diet. Um, will, will just taking an exogenous ketone kind of help. Um, there, is, there were a couple of small studies that suggested it might be beneficial on a very short-term basis in people with Alzheimer's disease. But those studies haven't panned out in terms of long-term efficacy. Same deal with epilepsy. You know, we've had exogenous ketones for years now, and yet um, to the best of my knowledge, there's not even one case report of anybody with epilepsy who was able to control their epilepsy with a ketogenic diet who's been able to switch off the diet and just take exogenous ketones and still get the same benefit. Um, and so what we think is that, unfortunately, it's not only about ketones. And that comes into the back to this message that I had before, which is there are probably 30 to 40 different mechanisms of action. And so taking exogenous ketones may not have the same influence on your gut microbiome. It may not have the same influence on some of the neurotransmitter changes. It, it almost certainly will not lower your insulin levels if you're eating a donut at the same time you're swallowing your exogenous ketones. Um, and so if you're going to eat donuts and cookies and you know sandwiches and cereal in the morning, that's not really going to do anything for your insulin resistance, whether you've got ketones or not. And so, um, but the one role that I have found for exogenous ketones is that when people are at least attempting to do a low carbohydrate or ketogenic diet or, or carnivore diet, whatever they're doing, um, if people are attempting to do a diet that probably is helping with insulin resistance and some of these other things, but they just can't seem to get their ketone levels up enough for whatever reason. I have had some patients who've had um, pretty significant improvement add exogenous ketones to an existing diet. So they're already on a diet. Some of them are actually on medications like antipsychotic medications or mood stabilizing medications that probably interfere with the effects of the ketogenic diet. They prevent people from getting into high levels of ketosis because the meds themselves cause weight gain. They cause higher levels of insulin, higher levels of glucose. 
And these people, for the time being, are stuck on these meds because every time we try to get them off, they get much more ill. And so they're stuck on the meds for right now. And so sometimes adding ketones can be really helpful in those cases as well because they're able to get the full benefit of the dietary intervention while we're still trying to make other adjustments in their treatment. Yeah. No, that, uh, that, that is exactly what I think a lot of us are seeing is that they can by themselves stand they're not going to do the trick, but in conjunction, you know, they can often be helpful. I wanted to just pick your brain about the brain a little bit. Just one question that one thought that I've had in, in my own life and uh, working with some of my clients, I have seen increasing certain minerals make a difference with, with brain health, with mental health issues. For me, uh, lithium orotate made just just a profound difference. But here's my thought. A lot of these minerals like magnesium, like lithium, we know that on a higher carbohydrate diet, the, they're being burned up at much, much higher levels. And I was just wondering if a ketogenic diet, part of the mechanism might be that these minerals are being able to be more efficacious at lower levels because they're not being burned up. Does that make sense? Or what, uh, what are your thoughts on kind of mineral status and all of this? And does the ketogenic diet make a difference in how the brain's using these minerals? Um, the, the easy quick answer is I think, yes, it, I think that dietary interventions, um, but probably more importantly, the profound effect that the ketogenic diet has on metabolism overall, that that absolutely is going to affect how your body uses different minerals and even different vitamins. Because vitamins and minerals are actually a big part of what we call metabolism. Um, right. And so metabolism really is, you know, in its broadest sense, a lot of people who really study and understand metabolism will actually say metabolism is actually all of biology. Everything in biology is metabolism in one way or another. That all yeah. biological processes, how cells live, what they do to, to survive, what they do to make energy, what they do to repair themselves, what they do that results in them shriveling up and dying, what, what, what happens when they turn into cancer that a lot of people will actually say that's all metabolism. Um, and so metabolism ends up, you know, although it's a one word, it's kind of like if it really is all of biology, that's pretty complicated. Um, so so uh, um, kind of the way I think about it, I do think of metabolism in that extraordinarily complicated way. Um, and it's so much bigger than just weight and diabetes and cardiovascular disease. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it, it definitely affects how our bodies use magnesium, how our bodies use lithium, which, which interestingly is an essential um, mineral that uh, they've, you know, people have done experiments where they've raised mice, for instance, with zero lithium in their environment and in their water. And those mice are actually profoundly ill. Um, their brains don't develop normally. They don't behave and act normally. Um, and, and so we know that the body needs at least trace amounts of lithium um, in order to function optimally. 
And, um, and it might be that for some people, especially with bipolar disorder in particular, because lithium is known as a bipolar treatment, um, it might be that somehow they have trouble using lithium effectively um, due to some problem and that, um, you know, restoring those levels or even giving them higher than normal levels will allow some of those processes to kind of function normally and for some people at least restore their health. So before we move on to how we can survive the pandemic, I just was wondering if you could give a recap of what is the state of low carb right now and where um, can we go with the research? Because you're pioneering a study on the ketogenic diet and treatment resistant mental illness. So I was wondering if you could kind of sum up what briefly just what's, what's the current state and where is the research going? So it's a great question. Um, the the really exciting news. So so you know most uh, if you talk to most regular doctors, just general doctors out there in the community, if you ask them about low carb or keto, a lot of them are still thinking this is just a fad. Oh, that's just a fad diet. Oh, that's dangerous. Oh, I heard keto is dangerous. That all that fat you can't eat. You can't do that. That's bad for you. Um, unfortunately, that is part of the current state of affairs. Is we have a lot of education and a lot of persuading and, um, to do with those healthcare professionals to bring them up to speed on the existing evidence and the existing science. Um, but changing minds is hard. People, you know, if, if you grew up a certain way and you were taught something all your life, you don't want to change it. It's, it's kind of noxious to think that you have to change your mind on something. Um, and I think that's the way it is for a lot of dietitians and doctors, unfortunately. They grew up being told keto and low carb are bad, so that's what they think, and they're not changing their minds, and you can't tell them otherwise. Um, the really good news, the promising news, is that traditional organizations like the American Diabetes Association has changed its mind. So last year, they stepped up and said, okay, uncle, we can't hold back anymore. The, the evidence is overwhelmingly clear. Low carb and ketogenic diets are probably the most effective way for people with diabetes and prediabetes to control their blood sugars and to improve their cardiovascular health. So we can no longer hold our tongue and they are an official part of the American Diabetes Association dietary guidelines. Um, and so, you know, the American Diabetes Association has been clear. We aren't recommending one and only one dietary pattern for people. We want to give them a, some choices. But low-carb and ketogenic diets are among those choices. And if you read their language, they actually acknowledge there's more evidence for these diets to control blood sugars than any others. Um, so we're making progress. We're making progress. You know, uh, Verta Health just got Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina to cover their services. So once, like, Blue Cross Blue Shield starts covering services, you know it's kind of legit. Um, and uh, so, so we're getting there. Um, in the mental health field, it's really interesting because, you know, five years ago when I started this work, um, when I, at least when I started publishing about this work and speaking publicly almost very, very few other people had published in the medical literature 
and not many people were publicly speaking about it. There were a handful of psychiatrists who were talking about it, um, but mainstream psychiatry wasn't really paying attention. And in the five years that I've been doing this work, what I can say now is that we've had dozens of articles published in very high impact, reputable psychiatric mm -hmm. journals, um, talking about the science, talking about case reports and studies um, of why psychiatry needs to be considering the ketogenic diet as a potential treatment option for sometimes very serious debilitating disorders. And so, um, a lot of really prominent, world-renowned psychiatrists are into this now. And, um, and it's almost becoming academic competition about who thought of it first and who should get credit. <laughs> and, and I've had some colleagues who are getting really upset about that and kind of mad about that. I'm trying not to be mad or, or petty about it. I'm just like, hey... It's a great idea and it's worth fighting over. Like if people want to try to steal the idea, that's actually a good thing because that means everybody knows it's a phenomenal idea and they want to get credit for it. And, and, you know, and at the end of the day, it's all about helping patients and helping move the field forward. And, you know, so, I mean, on one hand, I definitely get that competition and stealing ideas is not nice and is, is, you know, really disheartening. Um, especially for some of the people who've been doing this work for years. But uh, I'm not getting too upset about it. I actually see it as a good thing that, you know, the, the more people compete over the idea, that, that means the more it's going to gain traction and uh, the more research that's going to be done. So I'm really hoping to, you mentioned a, a research study that I'm hoping to do. So I'm currently trying to raise money for a large randomized controlled trial of, this dietary intervention against a, a different dietary intervention like the American Heart Association diet, which I personally suspect probably will not be helpful, but we'll put it to the test and we'll see if, if we put people on an American Heart Association diet and ha half of the others on a ketogenic diet, we want to do brain scans, measuring their brain metabolism before and after the dietary interventions. We're hoping to look at the gut microbiome, inflammatory markers, and, and most importantly, look at symptoms. Like, how are people feeling? How are they functioning? How are they doing in the world? Is this dietary intervention doing anything for that? Because at the end of the day, whether biomarkers or lab tests change or not really doesn't matter. What really matters is that people are feeling better and functioning better. Yeah. Well, Doc, we, we certainly know who we're going to put at the top of the list for credit. And uh, we just appreciate all the work that you've done. I told you earlier, I have a history of mental mental health issues in my family, and it's just near and dear to my heart, the things that you're doing. And I wanted to ask you about that, just because you have such a great attitude and so positive and hopeful. You know, I think about the first time that I saw the movie, you know, First Do No Harm, and looking at the ketogenic diet for epilepsy, and just experiencing those same emotions as the people involved in that case of like, why wasn't I told about this? Like we've known about this for a long time. Some of these studies, the things that you reference, we know the profound way that the ketogenic diet affects the brain. And it's like, why is there such a pushback? I mean, I think we all know some of the reasons 
But I guess that's my question to you. Why is there such a pushback? And then how, how do you and how should we, uh, you know, approach it? And uh, just give us some of your, your positivity and optimism, because I know in the trenches sometimes it gets super frustrating. It does. And, you know, the, the, so the one thing that I'll say is that, um, uh, again, changing people's minds um, takes a lot of time and a lot of work. And, you know, as I mentioned, when I started, when I started this diet with my patient with schizoaffective disorder, if anybody had told me before that, you know, the ketogenic diet might really help his psychotic symptoms and might help him function better in the world. I would have thought they were a quack. I really would have. I, right. I, I would have been like, you don't know what you're talking about. You, schizophrenia is a devastating brain disorder. Like, it, like, really, it's a devastating brain disorder. You clearly don't know what you're talking about. You've never talked to anybody with schizophrenia. A diet to, to, to change that? There's no way. Um, and so... So I'm mindful of that, that that was my own bias. And I had been doing the diet at that point for like probably 15, 20 years, you know, whatever, at least 15 years at that point. And, um, and I still would have said, there's no way this could do anything for schizophrenia. Um, I, I kind of was very open to, it might do something for depression though. It might help with anxiety because those are mild disorders, but not the serious brain is like real hardcore brain disorders. So I think changing minds is hard. Um, and this is really new radical information. It's a new radical way to think about what we call mental illness. Um, the really good news uh, from my stance is that, you know, I'm being asked to speak about this all over the world. And um, I just gave a presentation, you know, so I get invited to kind of low carb and keto conferences and persuading those people, they're already persuaded. That's, that, that's, that's easy. Um, you know, they're already kind of sold on the concept of keto and low carb. And when I mentioned the mental health improvement, they all think to themselves, yeah, he's right. I do feel better and I do feel more energetic. Yeah, I, I buy it. Um, but, you know, just less than a month ago, I gave a presentation at a Harvard Medical School psychiatry conference. So this is mainstream psychiatry, very traditional psychiatrist. And I had an hour to talk with people about the ketogenic diet and my work. And I asked everybody afterward, how, would you consider doing this treatment right now for any patients? 70% said yes. Fantastic. Um, and so the really good news in psychiatry is that I think, number one, psychiatrists are a lot more open-minded than other medical professionals. They really are. Okay. Um, number two, psychiatrists know that our current treatments are, are lacking and fail to work for far too many people. We all get that. We're not stupid. We're not, we're not, we're, we're like, we really understand that. And we see these people suffering in front of us week after week, month after month, and we desperately want to help them. And we just know that changing medicines over and over again isn't doing it. But we don't, so many of, so many of my colleagues don't know what else to do. They don't, they, they're not aware of what else they can do to help. And, and so when I, give a presentation and let them know this is another tool in our toolbox. And we're just borrowing it from neurologists 
This is a legitimate evidence-based epilepsy treatment. And we use those all the time in psychiatry. So you should feel free to borrow it from the neurologist today and start using this with your patients today, just like you would use gabapentin or Neurontin with one of your patients today, um, which is an awful, it's an anti-seizure medicine, but it's off-labelly used in millions of psychiatric patients. Um, and when I put it that way, most psychiatrists are like, he's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, he's right. Like, hey. But then I think that our next obstacle or hurdle is educating people on how to do this diet. Because it's not really as simple as just giving them a handout and saying, okay, eat more fat, you know, low carb, moderate protein. There, you're all set. <laughs> Go on your merry way and you're good. It's not that simple. We have to be able to help people overcome cravings. We have to help people get through keto adaptation or keto flu. We have to make sure their electrolytes and vitamins and stuff are appropriate for who they are and what diet they're consuming. We, you know, and um, uh, it's, and it really is, people need a lot of education, support and encouragement. You know, Thanksgiving is coming up. And so many people struggle around the holidays to even people in the low carb keto community. They struggle around the holidays like, oh, this is my childhood memory of having grandma's pie. And am I really not going to have a piece of pie when grandma's trying to get me to have a piece? And, and then they have the piece of pie. And then the next day they have some more pie leftovers. <laughs> and then they're kind of off the wagon. We have to be able to help people deal with even that, like the psychological aspects of how are you going to say no to grandma? How are you going to let grandma know that you love her still, that she can do other things for you? She can show her love for you in other ways. But to grandma, that's what it is. Grandma's making you a pie and that's her way of showing you love. And if you don't eat it, she feels, uh, she feels like you're rejecting her love. And and that sounds silly and trivial, but at the end of the day, it really, it, it's compelling to so many people to like, oh, I can't disappoint grandma. Um, and so how do we encourage people and enable, empower people to stand up for their health and still have the difficult conversation with grandma that grandma, I know you love me and I'm so appreciative and you know, and I love you and this is what I want to do, but I just can't eat the pie. Sorry. <laughs> I just can't eat the pie. <laughs> yes. And as someone that attended that conference, that was an excellent presentation and one of the best continuing education conferences I've ever attended as a provider. So thank you so much for that conference. Um, one thing I kind of wanted to uh, move on to is the pandemic. And right now, we're all, a lot of people are suffering. Their world has been turned upside down uh, with jobs, finances, their homeschooling. Uh, they're trying to manage themselves and also a family supporting their kids. And you wrote a wonderful article in Psychology Today about purpose and not wasting uh, this time and reflection on purpose. And I was wondering if you could speak to what are some of the holistic lifestyle strategies that people may be able to try just to calm their mind down? Um, because there's, there's a lot on people's plates right now. And I was just wondering if you could 
speak to your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, it's a, um, it's a really important question and a great question. And I just want to say that on top of doing all the work on dietary interventions and metabolic health and mental health, um, this has been something I've been really passionate about trying to help with too, is just kind of taking a step back from all of that common sense. The world is in crisis. People are in crisis. They, they're really struggling to cope with whatever they're having to cope with, whether they're a healthcare provider, whether they're an overwhelmed parent, whether they've just been laid off, um, whether they're at risk of being evicted or losing their home because they can't pay their mortgage. Um, we are really seeing desperate times. And um, I think I think that, you know, I think I want to start with just a tiny bit more about that meaning and purpose thing. Because one of the really difficult things for people when they are in crisis and when they are, um, you know, when they feel like their life is threatened and their livelihood is threatened, if I tell them, maybe try meditation, they think like, who the hell are you? And, and like, what are you talking about? I'm about to lose my home. Why the hell am I going to meditate? Like, what, what's that going to do? I'm going to be out on the street meditating? Like, like, are you clueless? Are you, you, you arrogant, rich, you know, doctor, you? Like, I hate you. You're, you're clueless. Like, you don't know what you're talking about. Don't talk to me. Um, and so, so for so many people, um, those kind of strategies, if they're not put into the right context, will feel really kind of clueless um, uh, and, and just misplaced. And so the, the very first thing that I always come back to, when people are in crisis and struggling, whether you're an overwhelmed healthcare provider, whether you're an overwhelmed parent, or whether you've been laid off, it's it's really easy to fall into the trap to focus and dwell on the problem or the problems that you're facing and to become almost paralyzed in that. Like, I need this to change. This has to change. We have to go back. We just have to open up the economy so that I can go back to my hotel job. That's the only solution. Like, when are we going to open the economy so I can go back to my job? And then my life will go back to normal and then everything will be okay. And it's really easy to get stuck in that for obvious reasons. The unfortunate reality is none of us, not one of us gets to control that decision. Um, even whoever happens to be the president of the United States doesn't get to control that decision. Like nobody gets to control that decision 100%. It is out of all of our control on one, in one way or another. And... And that means that on some level, we have to accept that the world has changed, that our circumstances have changed. We don't have to like it. So acceptance doesn't mean liking it or approving of it. Acceptance just means we have to acknowledge, we have to admit, yeah, this sucks. It's changed. <laughs> this really sucks. It's unfair. I don't like it one bit. Um, but then we have to move on. So we can either stay stuck there, and if we stay stuck there, we're going to be like curled up in our bed sobbing or 
or thinking about how we're going to kill ourselves or over drinking or overusing marijuana to numb ourselves. We're going to be doing something that's probably not really helpful for our survival and our adaptability. Or we can say, I have to go on. And, and what I, and so a lot of people really struggle with, well, how can I go on when I don't have my job? Like, you don't get it. My job is so important. So they're stuck in that problem. And the way that I try to help people move out of being stuck and focused on just one problem, it's not that, that your one problem isn't important or meaningful. I get that it is. I totally get you need a place to live. I totally get you got to pay your bills. I totally get you need a job. It, th that is all obvious and true. Life is more than just those things. And that's where I come to meaning and purpose is I think that when people are facing adversity and, they, and they're getting stuck in, in one of these situations that's really becoming unhelpful and they feel like they can't cope, that it's important to take a step back and just think more broadly, like, who am I and why am I alive anyway? And when I'm on my deathbed or when people are burying me, what are they going to say about me? Is this moment, Chris Palmer got laid off from his job in 2020 when millions of other people also got laid. Is that the defining purpose of my life? Is that the defining problem of my life? I sure hope not. No matter how much I love my job, no matter whether it means I have to move into a cheaper place, whether it means I have to take a loan from a friend or family member, whether it means you know I have to accept government assistance, like whatever it means, it's temporary. And, and so instead, I I try to encourage people to focus on the big picture of your life and who you are and what you're about and try to tap into that and figure out how you can keep living your life with meaning and purpose in spite of the pandemic. And so for a lot of people, you know, meaning and purpose is a really complicated concept. A lot of people think it's all supposed to be God and that's my meaning and purpose and they're simple as that. It's really not as simple as that. It, meaning and purpose is very complicated. Um, that can absolutely play a role for people and it can play a profound role for people. But even for people who are deeply religious, their meaning and purpose also includes all the relationships that they have. They're a husband or wife. They're a son or a daughter. They, you know, they have children. They're, they're a father or mother. They... Um, they're a good friend. They're a coworker. They have all sorts of relationships. They have a job or a career or some useful purpose. I take care of this kid or I take care of my dog. They play a role in their community. They, they, have, they have hobbies. They have passions. They have all sorts of things. And all of those things come together to define our meaning and purpose. And pandemic or not, 2020 or not, our lives are all going on. They haven't stopped. Nobody stopped the clock. Nobody said, okay, this pandemic sucks. We'll stop the clock. Uh, you can all stop worrying about living your lives. We'll wait for it all to go back to normal and then, and then we'll restart the clock and you can all start living your lives again. Nobody's doing that. 
because our lives are going on. And that means all of those relationships, all of those roles, all of those responsibilities, all of the ways that we can help other people, how we can help our environment, if that's what you're into, how you can help unwanted animals, if that's what you're into, how you can garden, if that's what you're into, how you can help the homeless or the needy or whatever, like whatever gives you meaning and purpose, all of those things are still going on. And some of those things actually, because of the pandemic, we have tremendously higher needs right now. Um, so if you're somebody who's into helping others, there are lots of people who need help right now. So even if you're unemployed, even if you're struggling yourself, if you can find a way to step out of that for even an hour a day and try to make yourself available to someone else to be helpful to them, doesn't mean you stop looking for a job. Of course, you're still looking for a job and you're doing that work and you're doing what you need to, to take care of yourself and to make a future for you and your family. But you, you, you can't focus 100% on that. You have to focus more broadly on who am I as a person. Take this, take this kind of extra time that you have to bond with your family in a way that you haven't, that you wouldn't do otherwise because you were so busy going from things, you know, running the rat race. Um, and I think if people can do that, the anxiety starts to go away. The despair starts to go away. They start to feel more grounded. And it doesn't mean the problems go away. The problems are still there and they're still serious and they still suck. They really suck. <laughs> let's, let's just call it, a, let's call a spade a spade. If I was yeah. laid off, that would suck. I would not be a happy camper. Um, and, uh, and so we have to acknowledge that, but there's more to you and there's more to your life than just your job and just a paycheck. And, um, and I think if we can get people to tap into that, then the other things start to go away. But that's the one thing that I would most encourage people to do more than like mindfulness and make sure you walk every day or get some exercise in. make sure you eat a healthy diet. All of those things can absolutely play a role in maintaining our health and maintaining our perspective. But, but if you're not doing those things with a clear sense of who am I and why am I here? And what, why am I waking up in the morning? What am I doing with my day? And why does it matter? Does it matter? If you can't answer that question, does it matter? If you can't answer that with a firm yes, yes, it does matter that I get out of bed. Yes, my existence here on this planet does matter because these people are depending on me, because I'm going to help this person, because I'm going to do my job, because I'm going to do my hobby, it, it, like whatever. Um, if you can't answer a firm yes, I would say that is your step one, is figure out all of the reasons that you need to get out of bed and go on with your day, no matter what shit you're dealing with. Chris, I love that perspective. That was just so well stated, and I think it's gonna be helpful for so many people. And I just wanted to follow up with a question, because there's a population that I don't wanna be excluded, and that's our youth. So a lot of these kids in high school, early 20s, they're frontline workers. They're working in our stores. They're delivering our groceries, our items. They are literally on the front lines. They're also homeschooling. 
they're missing out on a ton of milestones as well as connection among their peers. How can we as a society and as a parent help support our kids during this critical time in life? So absolutely, it's a great question. And there's no question again, no, I hope people don't hear me as some Pollyannish kind of, you know, uh, happy, everybody put on a happy face and deal with the pandemic, because that's not at all what I mean. And, um, and so there's no question that on the youth, as you just stated, they are experiencing, you know, overwhelming um, adversity and disruptions in their lives. And I would say kind of similar advice. I want to, I want to, you know, if you're a parent, I would really encourage you to sit down and talk with your kids multiple occasions. This isn't a one conversation kind of deal where you have, you know, a 10 minute conversation and then you check that off your list and you don't need to have it anymore. This is going to be an ongoing conversation. If you don't routinely talk to your kids make that a new habit, a new 2020 pandemic. This is a new habit that we are, you know, we're going to set aside five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever you and your kid can tolerate to start. Um, but we're going to set aside some time to just check in. How's life going for you? How are you feeling about the fact that you don't get to hang out with your friends? How are you feeling about the fact that you don't get a date right now? Or how are you managing dating if you are dating? How are you managing school from the remote location? How, and again, at the end of the day, I really encourage people to center all of it around this concept of meaning and purpose. Who are you? Who are you as a person, as a 13-year-old, as a 16-year-old? Who are you and who do you want to be? And what do you want to do in the world? The, so many people in the world are suffering and struggling right now. Is that a calling for you? Do you want to help any of them in any way? Um, and if you do, figure out some ways with them together that they can actually start meeting that calling. Um, you know, there are a lot of lonely people out there. They could get on Zoom calls and just keep people company over Zoom. Um, there are lots of volunteer organizations that will take all sorts of help, a wide variety of help. Teenagers could write, or college students could write opinion pieces for articles. They could start a blog on the website. They could go on social media and try to rally people around things that are important to them to really encourage people to change, to make a difference, to step up in the world, to, to help or whatever cause, again, whatever, whatever drives you, whatever you're passionate about. And it doesn't always have to be about like a useful purpose serving other human beings. It could just be something fun. If you're really into dancing, if you're really into music, if you're really into art, if you're really into gaming, what, whatever you're into, like step up, help a community of people, like enjoy that passion even more. Um, and then and then you're going to come away at the end of the day like, hey, I got 20 people to, to, to do that thing that I really wanted them to do. And they really enjoyed it. And three of them said thank you to me. That, like, thank you so much for doing it. When that person goes to bed, they're going to like feel like, hey, I did something good today. 
even though it's a freaking pandemic, even though it's 2020 and this year sucks and everything sucks, I did something good. I, I got, I got 20 people to do something and three of them said, thank you. And I'm going to do, I think I could do even more. I, I could do something different tomorrow. Um, lots of ways to have meaning and purpose. People can get, people can use this extra time that they have the boredom to get into better shape, start an exercise program. If you're not already doing that up your game, if you're already exercising, take this opportunity. Hey, I'm going to up my game. I'm not going to do the same old, same old. I'm going to see if I can get stronger, faster, do more. Um, and I'm going to look for some measurable result and, you know, taking care of yourself, taking care of your health, taking care of your metabolic health can be part of your meaning and purpose. And, um, but I think if you take a comprehensive view about who are you, why are you alive? What are you about? What do you want people to say about you when you're dead? It's kind of morbid to think about it that way. But, but when I encourage people to think about it in that way, that's when people start thinking of the big picture stuff. I, I want them to think, say I was smart, or I want them to say I was kind, or I want them to say I was a really good friend, or I want them to say I was a good son, or whatever. And those are your meaning and purpose things. That's a really quick way to get at your meaning and purpose. If you, if you, if you have some clear ideas about what do I really hope people will say about me when I'm in a coffin, that will get you quickly in touch with who you are and what drives you and what you're passionate about. And then think about those things. Am I doing something today so that people will say that when I die? And and what can I do? What more could I do today to be that better son or to be a better artist or to be a better friend or whatever? Um, and, uh, And then you kind of go from there. Well said, Doc. You know, purpose really is the foundation. It's what wakes you up in the morning, gets you out of bed. If you don't have that down, you know, the diet, the exercise, the other life activities or mental health, things are not going to fall into place. So, so glad that you uh, touched on that. I think you gave very excellent advice. So what, uh, what does the future have in store? I know some exciting studies, things going on. Tell us what, uh, what does 2021 look like? Huh. Well, I think the good news is we just got some good vaccine news. So maybe 2021, yeah. <laughs> maybe 2021 will actually be good for, uh, you know, who knows. Um, but I think regardless of trying to kind of be a fortune teller, because who knows what the hell is going to happen? Who, I, I, oh, my God, you know, the vaccine, they could come out with horrible safety concerns or something, you know, people's fingers are falling off (laughs) from the vaccine and, oh, well, I guess that's not going to work out. No matter what happens, whether everything goes back to normal and it's all solved, obviously we all hope for that because that makes things easiest on all of us. We all had a good life before. We all had a life before. We all had a routine before. I, I can't say everybody had a good life, but, um, we all have a life and it's easier to go back to what we know. But if that doesn't happen, life still goes on. So I would say right now, today, don't, don't, don't be holding your breath, waiting for 2021, thinking, oh, better days are ahead once they get that, you know, that vaccine or once my business opens up again so I can go back to work full time and, and have my money again, um, have my paycheck again. 
Um, don't wait for that. You can hope for it. It can be on your mind. I don't blame you for hoping for it. it on one level or another, all of us are kind of hoping for it. But um, live your life now. Live in the moment. Today, you know, today could be my last day. I hope it's not, but I could walk out in the street and some jerk could run me over. <laughs> and, uh, and that could be the end of me. And, and it's just important to kind of live your life with purpose. Live in the moment. Um, and uh, make the best of your life. It doesn't mean you don't plan for the future. It doesn't mean you don't prepare for the future. Of course we do those things and we need to do those things. Um, but that's part of living in the moment and living our lives today is that I'm, you know, I did some preparation work. I got my CV ready. I'm hoping this will lead to a better job. I, I you know, I'm, I'm putting an addition on the house or I'm cleaning up the house because it'll be nicer to live in this house if, it, I, if I get it decluttered. Um, uh, it, it can be anything, um, but keep living your life. Don't don't put anything on pause for 2021. So as far as 2021 for you, Chris, I know I had heard on a podcast that you're writing a book, and you also have a very exciting research study. I mean, what else is in store for you, and where can people find you? I just want to give a shameless plug for your website, which is a great resource for healthcare providers as well as uh, patients that are looking for other options in mental health. So just wondering what's in store for you and where can people find you? Thank you. So I'll start with where can people find me and you can certainly learn a little bit more about what I've done. If, you've, if you're interested in any of these articles that we've kind of mentioned, whether it's keto, metabolism, or even meaning and purpose, a lot of those are on my website, chrispalmermd.com. Um, so from there, you can find social media, you can find all sorts of things. Um, I'm, I'm working on raising money for a research study because I know that research is needed. It's just, it's a required path. Um, I, you know, in my heart of hearts, I'm really, I'm really not super passionate about research studies. Um, they're, they're kind of bureaucratic things and uh it's a lot of paperwork it really is highly bureaucratic and um so it's kind of a pain in the butt in a lot of ways but but i realized that that's part of the work that needs to be done to to get you know the ketogenic diet offered as a, a viable treatment to patients around the world that is part of this that's part of the process and i know that i'm one of the few people one of the few psychiatrists um, who can actually get people to do the diet. I know how to do it myself. I know how to get people to do it. Um, and I'm really worried that even though a lot of other researchers are interested in the science of it, they don't know how to get people to do the diet. So I'm hoping that maybe in 2021, maybe later in 2021, we'll have raised enough money and maybe we'll be, be getting started with that pioneering research study. Um, I am working on a book. Uh, I'm, it's turned into probably five or six books <laughs> now, unfortunately. Um, I have way too many ideas. But, um, but a lot of the work that I'm doing is around the, the, um, 
all of these questions that have come to my mind about, you know, what is the connection between metabolism and mental health? Um, and how does it all fit together? And why do psychological and social factors seem to play a role? Um, and how do they affect our biology? So, so that's part of what I'm working on. And, you know, my sincere hope, it's, it sounds pretty grandiose, but my sincere hope is that it might actually really be able to change the way we think about mental disorders. Um, and, uh, and that I'm hopeful might lead to new and better treatments, not just the ketogenic diet. I'm a huge fan of the ketogenic diet. I'm also aware that it probably isn't going to help every human being on the planet. Um, that uh, metabolism is complicated. It's influenced by many factors. You know, if somebody's doing a ketogenic diet but is also drinking like a fiend and not sleeping well and overly stressed and, oh, using cocaine and marijuana all the time too, it, ketogenic diet's probably not going to help that person. They need some, they, they need some additional help. And, um, and lots of other people have lots of other circumstances. So, uh, so I'm hoping that I can continue to move this work forward um, toward a day where we can come up with better, more effective treatments for people who are suffering. Well, Doc, we certainly appreciate what you're doing. We'll support you and help spread the word any way that we can. So thank you so much for coming on today. This was fantastic. We look forward to having you on again and, and, and keeping up with all that you're doing. And uh, here's, here's to a great 2021 for you and for us all. Awesome. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is great. Thank you for listening to the Mind Body Breakthroughs podcast. We are now available on iHeart Podcast and all of your favorite podcast listening platforms. As always, hit the subscribe button and leave us a review. We love hearing from you. If you're interested in being a guest on our podcast, send us an email. Link in the show notes.